0: From Hype Radio, I'm Jeff Staple, and this is The Business of Hype a show about creative entrepreneurs, brand builders, innovators, and the realities behind the dreams they've built. One of the things I find most interesting about life is how easily us humans adapt and just get used to things. How did we get to this point where the things we put on our feet to protect us from the ground, the things that we're supposed to essentially wear to destroy, How do these things now have value? When I was a kid, no one in my family, my school, nor my circle of friends understood my fascination for kicks. And now, just a few years later, people line up for days to get certain shoes. People pay two times, three times, 10 times retail for kicks. And now, this so-called underground subculture has spawned the need for an official, 24-7, constantly updated stock market to tell us the true mathematical value for every sneaker ever made. How the hell did we get here? Well, that discussion is a topic I'd love to have on a future episode. But for now, what I'm interested in is having this conversation with the person who thought it would be a good idea to have the stock market. Enter Josh Luber of StockX. So while the concept of a stock market might seem a bit complicated, the foundation of it is really all about supply versus demand. And whether we trade commodities on Wall Street or Yeezys on eBay, we all innately understand the fundamental principles of this. And while the basic premise is easy, now try to actually make that into a fully functioning business. It's not so simple. Josh and I sit down and discuss how his fascination for data and kicks created an entirely new chapter for his life.
1: StockX is the world's first stock market of things. Um, That doesn't exist. StockX is a, it's a marketplace. Uh, in a lot of ways, like eBay, we connect buyers and sellers, uh, but the way that we connect buyers and sellers is completely unique. It is exactly the same way that the world's stock markets connect buyers and sellers. And today we do that for four products. We do that for sneakers, streetwear, handbags, and watches.
0: So when you say you compare it to a stock market, you're talking about typical, I buy Apple stock, I buy Uber stock, I buy commodities, but you're doing it for products that have a resale value, right?
1: at a starting point that's absolutely right uh-huh. Right, right um, we're doing this not as an investment necessarily although you could absolutely use this to invest in certain products that have resale value like Air Jordans or Yeezys mm-hmm. right but theoretically it works for almost any product that you could think of mm-hmm. right it doesn't work for something that is a unique one-of-a-kind item like a work of art um, a, a car, mm-hmm. um, a house, nothing, there's no market for a one of one, but anything that has some finite supply, mm-hmm. right, which is to say, doesn't work for toilet paper that has infinite supply, right. but anything that's finite supply, which is almost any commercial good, mm-hmm. right, the the hoodie you're wearing, right, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, the sweater you buy at the store, it works for that because that is what the stock market is all about. The stock market is about understanding what that supply is of that product. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Um, I assume you're very data-driven in your background. Are you a sneakerhead first or a data guy first? I love that you
1: asked this question um, because on the surface, I think a lot of people do see me as maybe a data guy first or, or an IBM guy because it stands out on my resume. I just turned 40. I have the exact same story as every other 40-year-old sneakerhead, which is I grew up playing basketball when Jordan played I always wanted Air Jordans. My mother would never buy me Air Jordans. As soon as I got some money, I bought Air Jordans, right? <laughs> I've been collecting sneakers since I Everyone's was Everyone's probably... got that story, yeah. Literally, <laughs> it's the exact same story, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, anyone... Which Air enjoyed... Jordan was the one that did it for you? Uh, Jordan 5 Grape. Okay. Um, when I was uh, mm-hmm. I was at camp, and I remember seeing someone wearing... And it was purple, and I was like, what the fuck mm-hmm. is that? And I came home from camp, and I was like, I absolutely have to have this. My mother was like, 125 hours. No way. Mm-hmm. You know, get out of here. We used to go to... Um, this discount store called John's that was um, in a, it was like all the shoes were in plastic bags, like shrink wrapped. No, no, like not even that. Almost like a like a like a not even shrink wrapped. Like like literally like a plastic bag like you would put fish in or something <laughs> like that, right? <laughs> That's how they displayed the shoes. Yeah, and it was all and they were all stuck in the racks, right? So you'd pull them out, look, and they were all like twenty nine. It was twenty nine dollars yeah. a pair, and like if you pulled them all out, you might be able to find like you know an old uh-huh. pair of Nikes or something like that. I actually have a pair of Brooks that I still have uh, that I like once pulled out from there. But that's how we used to get our shoes. And then as I got a little bit older and I started playing basketball, you gonna get like one pair a year. But like the Nike Air Maestro, like I still have that from like my junior year. But no, I mean, I've collected sneakers probably since I was you know, 10, 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and shit, I didn't actually do any real data work until I went to work for IBM.
0: So, growing up, you weren't, like, a natural-born quant? No. I was a natural-born entrepreneur, though. Um, I've started to run three other startups before StockX, Mm -hmm. and we can talk about
1: some of those, but um, uh, you know who Gary Vaynerchuk is? Yeah. All right. So, the first time I ever met Gary Vaynerchuk... First of all, it was one of the most intense conversations of my life. We sat at, like, this tiny little, like, uh, like lunch counter in New York, this tiny little place, this close to each other, like, face-to-face. Uh-huh. And it was, like, it, it was 20 minutes. We got, like, an hour and a half worth of conversation, 20 minutes. But the very first conversation he asked me was, baseball card or candy? And I was, like, actually both. Uh-huh. In when I was in sixth grade, I sold chewing gum. Uh, When I was in ninth grade, I sold uh, blow pops Mm -hmm. and I collected baseball cards all growing up until about 92, 93, where, you know, you shift from like baseball cards to like, you know, girls and whatever else you do when you're, you know, a junior in high school. But um, so I was uh, an entrepreneur from a very early age um, before that word really existed. Mm -hmm. And and so it was sort of just a natural growth and, and data just became one of those notches as you start to build different skill sets around being an entrepreneur. Were you really good at math? I was. Uh, I was definitely really good at math, um, and I was really bad. I was like uh, like eight hundred, five hundred on SATs for uh-huh. math, English. So it was split. I was so I was definitely a
0: math guy. When he when he asked you baseball card or candy, what did he? What was he trying to get out of you at that? He was trying to understand whether that I was, um, you
1: know, a core you know entrepreneur. Whether mm-hmm. it's been something that's in my blood for forever, or whether you know you're you know new to the game and you're just trying to do something, and which is fine, and not well, that people can't do that, but, like, again, it's uh, around age. You know, Gary's about four or five years older than me. At our age, like, if you were a male entrepreneur at our age, you probably were in, like, you probably did one or the other, was selling uh, baseball cards or trading baseball cards or selling candy mm-hmm. because those were the two sort of natural hustles for a, a 10-year-old a kid, yeah. kid in in 1988, Right. right? and it's and true. so that and that's totally what it was and it yeah. was like i looked at him and i paused for a second because and i knew exactly what he was talking about yeah.
0: and it was actually both for, for me, me it was comics which is the same vein as 100% uh, yeah baseball cards 100% yep. yep tried to start a store out of my garage re- like pricing little comic books and stuff yeah yeah, yeah. and and uh, you know for baseball cards it was beckett
1: was there some version of that was a, a price guide for comics uh yeah i think it is beckett, actually. beckett's actually beckett did comics yeah, also
0: yeah yeah, yeah. Yep. yep exactly so you had baseball cards, you had Beckett's, so you understood this, this idea that like some cards were worth more than the other, right? which is a very simple supply and demand idea. When did you start to feel like this could be applied to other things that didn't have that Beckett's guidebook?
1: Yeah, so from a, a sneaker perspective, um, I was on the outside looking in uh, all my life. Um, I started three other businesses before StockX. None of them had anything to do with sneakers, Mm -hmm. almost intentionally so, almost like intentionally separating business and pleasure out of my life because I didn't want to create a business that was an excuse to play with sneakers. Right, kind of like the way that guys who wanted to create a comic book store or a baseball card store, just because they always wanted to be around baseball cards. I was yeah. sort of weary of that because I because we
0: loved sneakers so much.
1: Right, and and so it, it almost seemed like I should separate those. And so um, so it was purely as a consumer. Um, going through and buying shoes on eBay mm-hmm. and not having access to, I was like, well, what does this actually sell for? Mm-hmm. You know, it's really hard to tell on eBay what something's actually selling for because if you think about it, anything that's sitting there on eBay has probably been sitting there a while, and so it's therefore overpriced because mm-hmm. if it was a good price, someone would buy it right away. Yeah. So it's really hard to figure out what's a fair price. Mm-hmm. And what had happened was I had shut down my last startup in the crash of 8 And I moved to New York. I I grew up in Philadelphia. I lived in Atlanta for 15 years. And I moved to New York to take a job at IBM, Mm -hmm. which I never thought I would do. And that's a whole other long story. (laughs) But if you're a startup guy and you go take a big job at a a big corporation, the first thing you do is you start working on shit on the side.
0: Because the working at the man is, like, draining, right?
1: Not only is it draining, but it is, like, you don't, it doesn't consume you the way a startup does, yeah. right? So I'd come
0: home, and it's like, I
1: don't want to work on IBM shit, but, like, you have this, so it had to be something to do mm-hmm. working on the side. And what happened was I went to IBM, and I very quickly went from I thought I knew a lot about data to, well, now I'm a freaking expert because you have to be, because yeah. you get thrown in the deep end, you're doing all this data work as a consultant. And so it was very coincidental timing. All this was happening right around uh, February of twenty. Uh, of 2012 okay, and February 2012 was Galaxy Foam release and All Star and I'm living in New York Mm -hmm. and going through this of this sort of this hyper uh, laser that had come down into the sneaker world for the first time in a long time where there's riots and now uh, news coverage the same way they did back in 91 with Mm -hmm. you know your sneakers are your life so there's all this there's this new lens into the sneaker world making it a little bit more mainstream combined with like well what the fuck is a, is the Galaxy phone pod actually phone actually works. Right. People were remember the guy was like I'm selling my car and trading it for I mean it was yeah. like it was nuts. Yeah. And so that it, there was those two th- those two things came together and it was mm-hmm. well I wonder if I get a hold of some sneaker data just to play with my own amusement just to kind of see what I could do with it because this was going on all around me. I was doing this data work at IBM all this was happening. Right. And so that was the impetus. Can okay. I get a hold of some sneaker data? just to play with for my own amusement. Yeah. And th- were you selling shoes ever on eBay? I've sold a handful of pairs. Okay. You know, I've never been uh, much of a reseller. I'm usually just buying them and keeping them. Yeah. Um, for, you know, for whatever it's worth, right? I've been fortunate to have, um, relative to my age... Decent job and a decent amount of disposable income mm-hmm. that um, that you know I didn't really need to flip shoes in order to pay for my shoes. Yeah. Once I started working, right, right. When and earlier it was you know sort of begging your mom,
0: but mm-hmm. like once I started working, like the first thing I did was I, I went to the mall and bought a pair of Jordans. So yeah, I, yeah. You know Well, if you've ever tried to sell shoes on eBay, you'll know that like you've you've had that feeling where you're just like, if you had a bad day, you might just charge something differently than on another day, right? You you do do some like. Quantitative research you see what other people are selling for but at the end of the day you're like fuck that I think I could get twice as much and you there's a kid That's just like fifty thousand dollars for a pair of phones because he feels like he could get some idiot right a sucker So that obviously frustrated you to see like this fluctuation in price on an hour-to-hour basis And not only
1: that but your your point is exactly right that a a lot of sellers on eBay will take the position of I'm gonna put it out here and someone's going to come along and eventually pay my price. It is a seller's market on eBay. Yeah. Right? Because as a buyer, you don't have visibility into where else this shoe might be selling for and it might be hard to find it, right. particularly if you're dealing with a shoe more than like a year or two old. Yeah. And knowing that eBay was the largest resale marketplace at the time, mm-hmm. there was an easy way to collect eBay data. And as we went down this path, and I'm not a technologist at all, but I recruited one of my former startup partners on the technology side to help me figure out how to collect eBay data. Okay. And if you've ever seen an eBay uh, auction or an eBay link on a sneaker blog, right, that is part of eBay's affiliate marketing program. Mm-hmm. And so you go on whatever, Nice Kicks, and you'll click that link and it'll take you to eBay. And if you buy something, right, Nice Kicks gets an gets a affiliate fee. Yeah that same function, right? as opposed to taking that auction and just dropping it onto a website, you can take that auction and just drop it into a database. Okay. So it was actually really easy from a technology standpoint to be able to collect eBay auctions. And so my, Like really easy? Like you don't even have to ask eBay for it. So it's, it's really easy if you, so it was just short of me being able to do it, right? So <laughs> my former partner on the technology side, from his point, it was super easy, okay. right? To be able to tap into eBay's API and build it eBay has a uh, Terms of Service, and their API is open for, for certain reasons, mm-hmm. right? So you're allowed to collect it, what you're allowed to do with it, that's a different question. And was what right? you were doing with it sort of gray? Sort of gray is a very good way to put it. <laughs> it's a very positive way um, of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Um, the reality is that um, uh, what I was doing with it, um, they were okay with, because I was driving everything back to eBay. Mm-hmm. So, ultimately, what Campless was, and the, the company we created was called Campless, which was a, a sneaker price guide. Before it became StockX, it was a, a sneaker price guide, and then we would just drive people back to eBay for mm-hmm. affiliate links. Mm-hmm. So, eBay was really okay with it, even though we were creating data out of it that maybe was a gray area. Yeah. Ultimately, because we were driving people back to eBay, right. they, they were okay with it. So,
0: Campless, this previous business, was really like if you've ever tried to buy a car, there's the Kelly Blue Book, or as you said, the Beckett's Baseball Card Price Guide. Campus was a price guide only. Now you know the price, you still got to go out and find it somewhere for that price, right? That's all it was. 100%. Okay. Campus was the Kelly
1: Blue Book or Beckett for sneakers. Um, Then we would have a link and people would take people back to eBay Uh and they were still on their own to go buy it. And And were were you
0: making money through affiliate marketing dollars as well?
1: uh, Yes. But nominal. Uh-huh. I, I mean, right? Like, the, the whole business was, you know... Was, it was. First of all, it was, a, it was a side project. I was doing it on the side while working at IBM. Mm-hmm. We had a couple other volunteers who helped because they either love sneakers or they love data or they just wanted to be involved, like my brother. Um, but there was, no real, there was no real money in the company. We made a couple bucks. It paid for, like, the servers, and, and that was it. Um, but theoretically... I guess if we'd had millions and millions of of of, uh, of viewers and traffic, we could have made real money. But you know, it was always around the data and just trying to do something fun with it.
0: Yeah, I remember though in those campus days, there was a couple of times where like bigger blogs and media outlets would actually like cite you guys. Right, and um, and that was
1: the the start of of building something bigger. Uh-huh. Um, in the beginning, it was purely a price guide. We created a blog to go with it that was kind of like Freakonomics for sneakers.
0: What you like commentary on the market?
1: Yeah, yeah. And some was commentary on the market. Um, Some was trying to just create interesting storylines. There was one that people liked a lot. It was titled are sneakers more like stocks or drugs, mm-hmm. and sort of comparing the stock market and the drug trade and, and how do sneakers compare and contrast to, to both of those. Which one is um, it closer to, by the way? Uh, it's, it's a lot closer, the the, um, the people and the way they act is a lot closer to the drug trade, but the sneakers and the data is a lot closer to the stock market. Okay,
0: so it's a hybrid of um, two Yeah, it,
1: <laughs> it is a hybrid.
0: You ever hear the story of how Instagram started? It actually started as a food sharing app Yeah, it was kind of like a mix of Foursquare for foodies. Like, hey, I'm here at this hip restaurant, and here's a photo of my avocado toast. That was Instagram. Well, it's painfully obvious that they have since pivoted business models. And by the way, the story of how that pivot happened is incredible. I suggest you Google it. Anyway, my point is, is that every entrepreneur can tell that story of a false start and how they had to back up to start all over again. Campus made a pretty good name for itself, and for all intents and purposes, it was a success. And Josh was hedging his bets by doing it at the same time as his full-time job, thereby being able to keep his salary and work on his passions at the same time. What I love about Josh here is that he fused that passion into a job that didn't exist before. He loves data, and he loves sneakers. I hear from a lot of people that have strange passions and think that there's no possible way they can make a living from it. Hello, people. There are now professional, full-time, highly paid video game athletes. Trust me, where there's a will, there's a way. But Josh wasn't satisfied with what he built with Campless. He knew there was more, but he still needed to fine tune that idea before it would one day become StockX.
1: So what had happened was because of some of these other interesting stories and because there was no one doing real analytics on the secondary market, we did start getting cited by other people. And notwithstanding what some people may think about him, Matt Powell was the first person to, to link to us, to highlight us, to start talking about us on Twitter because he's a data guy and you know he understood that there was some real work going on. And, and by the way, that was the, the reason we started the blog, because anybody can just put a number on a site and say, you know, a, a, mm-hmm. whatever, Jordan 7 Bordeaux is worth $300. What, we did that first, and then no one really cared, because mm-hmm. anyone... So then we said, we know, we need to, like, you know, it's like third grade math class. We need to, like, show our work. Yeah. And so then we started putting all the work in behind it, all the, like, the math mm-hmm. in it, which was over the head of, like, 99% of the people who could give a shit about what... All, but at least it was like, oh... Like, there's some real work going into some real analytics, yeah. and it was a
0: reason to build credibility in the site. Right, right. Um, did you ever try to get a job, like, in the sneaker world? Like, even in, like, retail or sales, did you ever try to do that?
1: In January of, 25th, January of 2016, um, I gave a presentation at uh, Nike. It was a leadership offsite at the Presidio. It was every leader from Jordan and from Nike, and they invited me to speak there because I had just done a TED Talk about sneakers. Okay. The first slide that I put up there was, it was a a data slide, there were two columns. And the first column said, the the title of the slide was um, Years that Josh Applied for a Job at Nike. And on the left hand side was every year from 1995, the year I started college, until two thousand fifteen, every single year, and then down the right comment just said yes, 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 yes. That wasn't my opening slide. I literally like every single year, like I applied for internships at Nike and jobs at Nike, and and did you, you know, get them every that, year? I ne- I've never got one never job got ever one. in in any of it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it was great, and everyone in the room liked that a lot, and uh, and now I'm on the outside. But that was right. kind of what I meant. Like I've been. Trying I, to get in. I've purely just been a consumer yeah. into this into this world. Right. And you know, watching and reading all the sneaker blogs and following everyone on, on Twitter and everything else. And then in twenty twelve created campus and started to actually become part of this. Mm-hmm. And so for a lot of people, like I was an outsider coming in. I was like this data IBM guy right. coming in. And I totally get why that might be the perception. But like I was like anyone else. I've been collecting sneakers since I was ten.
0: Yeah, yeah. With Campus, did you ever get calls from companies to like sort of offer insight and consult? Oh, 100 percent. Okay. Um,
1: and in the beginning, it was very like strict under NDA, like they did not want anyone to know that Interesting. they were talking. In fact, so the the Nike conversations were great in the beginning because the first conversation, no matter who it was at Nike or however I got introduced to them, the first conversation was, "Oh wow, this is like really cool data. We should find a way to work together." And then the second conversation was. Ooh, you know what? Uh, this is the resale market. Maybe I better talk to my boss. Mm-hmm. And then the third conversation was total silence, no returning emails, no returning phone calls, like at all. And I get it. Like I totally get it. You know why that happened? And like, it's taken. well, explain why. Is there a taboo with the resale market at these brands? Hundred percent, right? And this dates back to right? 1985, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, your first Jordans of, you know, for 33 years, Nike's had this very willful blindness policy towards the secondary market, right? Obviously, everything they do creates it. Obviously, you know, they benefit from the supply and demand policies that create lines in the resale market, et cetera. But, you know, there's been a really lot of bad PR associated with the resale market, Right. right? 1991, Air Jordan on the cover of Sports Illustrated, right? Your money or your sneakers or your life. Yeah, with a gun, yeah. Right? I mean, we all remember that. You know, kids getting trampled. Right. And, and so there's a Pigeon lot of dunk. reasons. <laughs> I'm sure I don't need to remind you about you know about yeah. some of the, the bad things that have happened. And that is what the mainstream world sees. And so it's created this policy where the brands have said, listen, oh, no, that's we not don't condone We're not, this, we're not yeah. a part of that. Whatever. Right. It's only been in the last couple of years that they've started to... Own that a little bit more Mm -hmm. because by the way, I think the brands have done really good jobs to stem some of that, right? Nike move releases from midnight to ten A. M. and then started going from first come, first served to raffles Mm -hmm. and like so they've done good stuff to to do that. Right. And so it's just a slow process to get those brands to appreciate the secondary market. They all realize it's not going anywhere. Mm And then to figure out, should we work with them, and then how? And that's fine, it's a long process, it's a long game, and there are some people at the brands that I'm sure you know are gonna be old school forever, mm-hmm. and are always gonna think that, no, like it should, and then there's other people who are like, no. like Embrace it. Yeah, yeah like we, it should be forward thinking, it should be how, how should we work with them.
0: Right. Um, when, you were at Camp, when you started Campless, and you're doing Campless now, um, and then you're still working at IBM, what was the impetus to to say like i'm going to stop doing this IBM day job thing Dan Gilbert okay, right. explain uh, who Dan Gilbert yeah. is for the people who don 't know yeah, so Without, I mean you could wiki search this really yeah. fast, but explain Dan uh, so um, Dan is
1: most uh, notable for the owner being the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Mm-hmm. Um, his primary business and, and where um, he made uh, his money initially was from Quicken Loans. So okay. he's the founder and, and chairman of Quicken Loans, which just became the largest mortgage lender in the country. Is Quicken Loans also Quicken and QuickBooks? No. Okay. So that's a good question. <laughs> okay. Um, but um, it has a, a history together. So Dan originally created a mortgage company called Rock Financial um, in the late 90s. Dan basically invented online mortgages, mm-hmm. which is today a very common thing yeah. to think about. But you like, see commercials not, for
0: it all the time. But yeah. back
1: in 1998, it was crazy to think that people would put all their financial information online to, to try to get a, a mortgage. Um, and so Dan created a company called Rock Financial. He sold it to Intuit, mm-hmm. which renamed it Quicken. Mm-hmm. Intuit ran it into the ground and sold it back to Dan mm-hmm. and basically licensed the name Quicken in perpetuity. So it's still... Called Quicken, but it has nothing to do with Intuit or Quicken or, or QuickBooks anymore. Okay. Yep. All right. So, um, Quick, uh, Quicken Loans is the the flagship company. Yeah. The cabs are the most notable. Um, but there's about 130 other companies within the Quicken Loans family of companies. Mm-hmm. Um, including All different, not just financial mortgage stuff. That's right. There are some other mortgage companies, but there's also uh, a lot of real estate mm-hmm. um, in Detroit, in Cleveland, and a few other cities. There are some casinos and gaming. There are other professional sports teams at the minor league level. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of startups, uh, StockX being one of them. Okay. So
0: that's that's Dan. Yeah, um, so Dan is uh, not a poor fellow. Dan is not a poor fellow. Okay, Um, and so... He's on that Forbes list every year. He's on that Forbes list. And so you're saying, you're working at IBM. You're fucking around with this campus data shit, right? Getting a few calls here and there from Nike and then not getting calls back. And then all of a sudden, what happens? So it was uh, right
1: before Easter of 2015. So coming up on almost three years. And uh, I get a totally random call. Uh, email from two guys that say, hey, we work with Dan Gilbert. We're really interested in what you're doing. Can we talk? Dan's got no ties to the sneaker industry, but yeah. sure, right? Talk to anybody. I get on the phone with these guys, and it's like word for word the exact same conversation I had a thousand times at that point. I didn't think anything of it. And then two days later, they call me back and they say, we definitely want to do this business. We definitely want to work with you. We'd like to fly you to Cleveland to go to a game and meet Dan. Well, first half that statement, it's like, whatever. Everybody says they're going to do shit, right? Second half, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You can fly me to a game. No problem. Yeah. You know, of course. You're still at IBM right now. I'm still at IBM. I'd moved from, I just had my first kid. Uh um, And I just moved from New York down to Philadelphia where I live. Okay. Right.
0: So Campus is still not making. A no, a ton of money.
1: No, not making we're really no money. I mean okay. it was it was purely a, a passion project aside. Okay. The there was the thing was there was enough people using it and there was enough interest and people really liked it and it was clearly had a very defined niche that no one else was playing in. So there was something there. But, man, I talked to everybody in the sneaker industry at that point. Nike, eBay, Foot Locker, Complex, yeah. like, you name it. And there was never really a good fit of, like, who to work with or how to leave IBM and what to do. And for right. me, it was, like, how do I leave IBM? What do you do with this thing?
0: So in your head, this is still a hobby, fully, like, just a hobby that it, you can't figure out a match for.
1: Not only was it still a hobby, it was it was a it was a hobby that had a finite window because my um, my wife was, was at this point, like, 39 weeks pregnant with our second kid. hmm And up until this point, um, I had had two legit full-time jobs. I mean, two 60-hour-plus-week jobs for both of them. And my wife had taken all the responsibility of my first kid off my plate. You know, I just got to kiss her and put her to bed, like, you know, it was... And I knew that there was no way that shit was going to fly once the second kid came. I didn't have to ask her, like... Like it was, it was known, yeah. yeah. Like it was stop with the yeah. campus, basically. Something was something. <laughs> something was going to have to give, right? I yeah. had two jobs and one kid. I was about so, and but literally a week before that happened, uh-huh. um, you know, I get a a, call. a week before
0: your second kid is born. Yeah, yeah.
1: My my wife's thirty nine. I was pregnant, and um, and these guys call me up and invite me to a game in Cleveland, and you know, so I'm. I didn't think really much of it from mm-hmm. a business standpoint. So I'm telling my wife, my friends, like, you know, I get to go to a game with the owner of the cats. Yes, yeah, that was the highlight. You get to go to a that game That was the whole story, man. That's all I thought was coming out of this. And you know, and these guys were like, you know, you know, I know it short notice, could he, could he come on Easter Sunday? First of all, I was like, I'm Jewish, like absolutely, like <laughs> let's make this thing happen, right? Yeah. And then, you know, I didn't tell Dan and those guys that my wife was pregnant, right? Uh-huh. But like the plan was fly in, go to the game that afternoon. It was like an Easter Sunday game, so it was like three PM and then fly right back home that night. Mm-hmm. So that was the plan. There's a long story here, but the short of it is that essentially we get there, um, we end up in a room together and talking to Dan about this idea I'd had about a stock market for sneakers. And the way that I was thinking about this was really super logical, was that if you knew the value of one pair of sneakers, you could very easily create sneaker portfolios. Right, look at someone's whole sneaker collection the way you look at a stock portfolio. And then the logic in the data was like, well if you knew asset pricing, if you knew portfolio pricing, then perhaps you could actually operate as a stock market. Mm-hmm. So it was very much sort of ground up, being you know, like, oh this would work really well for sneakers because people already treat sneakers as assets the way that people buy and sell them and, and hold them and decide are these Yeezys gonna go up, maybe I should hold them, maybe I should sell them. Like, right. it it was already happening. Did Dan
0: understand that this was happening?
1: So, so it's things, so okay. I, Pitched them this idea I had around a, a stock market for sneakers, and um, and then I'd had this like one piece of paper I had showed them that like had this idea on it, right? and they look at me. The three of them look at me. Dan and the two guys. They look at me with pure shock, uh-huh. and it doesn't register to me why. Uh-huh. And then one of them takes a piece of paper out, and he's like, "Yeah, we have one of those. That is exactly what we want to build: a stock market for sneakers."
0: So wait, and one of these like, guys takes out a piece of paper that's almost identical to like your piece of paper in terms of a plan. Yeah. Yeah, that had literally the same <laughs> idea. It
1: was like the, the core part of it was a stock market for sneakers. Uh-huh. And I was like, holy shit, right? Because <laughs> like I I by the way, I'd taken that piece of paper that Nike eBay Foot Locker Complex, like everybody. Mm-hmm. And everybody had said, Oh, that's pretty cool, but what we want to do is this, right? Mm-hmm. We want to take your data and do X, Y, and Z in our business. Right. And fair enough. I think yeah. Nike was going to change their whole business, build a stock market. Yeah. These guys, you know, I, I later found out that Dan's always had this much bigger idea around a stock market of things, that you could buy or sell anything the same way that the stock market works. Mm -hmm. And then he happens to see his 15-year-old son buying and selling sneakers on eBay, like every other 15-year-old kid. right? And he took a closer look at that and said, that's a pretty crappy market leader, eBay, and that'd be a perfect place to start a stock market. Uh So Dan actually goes out and he puts together a team independently to start working on a sneaker stock market. Mm -hmm. And those guys got a week, two weeks into it and realized, well, crap! We need a sneaker guy, right? Mm-hmm. Who's a sneaker guy to almost run the sneaker stock market? Yeah. So they go out, they do some research, they find campus, they find me. Turns out the sneaker guy is also trying to build a sneaker stock market, right? right. Is also ran through other companies and worked for right. IBM and wasn't like a random guy. Yeah. So it's this really crazy serendipity of like everything they were looking for and everything I was looking for.
0: Josh calls this turning point moment in his career serendipity, but serendipity isn't as magical as it often seems. Yes, by definition, serendipity is the occurrence of an event by chance in a happier, beneficial way. But the truth is, if Josh wasn't already paving his own path, he wouldn't have found himself in this serendipitous moment. Jay-Z once said, I heard people say I'm the luckiest man on a planet. I like to think I stay ready. Josh positioned himself by bringing an idea to life, however preliminary that idea might have been. But without Campless, There simply is no StockX. If you have a vision and you believe in it, here's my advice. Bring that baby to life. Let people see it, even if it's not perfect. Just get it out into the world. Like Reed Hoffman said, an entrepreneur is someone who jumps off of a cliff and builds a plane on the way down. So when you're preparing to go to Cleveland for this game, right, were you thinking Shark Tank elevator pitch like I'm gonna I'm gonna rent a a suit and like put on a tie and put some loafers on this is Dan Gilbert like this is my moment no no
1: not really (laughs) uh you know I mean I when you've been doing something and you're as into it right I've been doing I was at that point I was doing campus for three years Mm -hmm. right like I knew this inside and out, like I lived it, yeah. um, and you know, the other part of it was, you know, as a startup guy, you know, I was like, look, I'm gonna show up and like I am who I am, and my wife convinced me to um, to like wear a button-down shirt, but I was still wearing, I, was wearing I, I wore Tiffany Dunks, and I took a pair of LeBrons with me, and, um, and I was wearing jeans and a button-down shirt, and I was wearing this hat, which I'm wearing a, a gray skull cap. Uh, a gray skull cap down to your eyebrows. Yeah. And I was wearing this hat and I walked in off because I was walked in off the street, so I was still wearing this. And the first thing that Dan Gilbert ever said to me ever was, he was like, I bet you're the only guy at IBM that wears a hat like that. And I was like, Maybe, yeah. (laughs) Like, you know. And what's crazy is you've seen Detroit now and you've seen the family of companies, from the top down, Dan is all about like just being yourself and your own personality. And, like, honestly, if I had walked in there wearing a suit, I think they probably would have seen right through that and mm-hmm. been like, you know, this guy is trying to be something he's not and, and work through that. And, were they in suits? Yeah. Um, Dan usually wears a blazer to home games. The other two guys were wearing, like, jeans and a button-down. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, like, top-down. is one of the really great things about this, and I know a lot of people have seen, at least when I, any public appearances these days, I'm usually wearing a, a tiger's hat backwards. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's... What it's like working around here? Like yeah. I'll be in a meeting with Dan and Warren Buffett, wearing the tiger's hat backwards.
0: Like that's mm-hmm. just you know, right? Um, and you go into the meeting with this one sheet, mm-hmm. just in—it's ca- like a just-in-case thing, right? Because you don't know what to expect. No idea. You don't know if you're gonna get like a video presentation or a PowerPoint, so you just like make a one-sheet piece of paper that you're gonna bring. It's literally folded up in my bag. <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh folded God. into fours and like in my bag, and then. The conversation propels to a place where you feel like I'm going to pull this idea out. And do you ever think like if you played this meeting the wrong way it could have gone totally different? Like, what if you went in with, like, an easel and, like, a 20-page PowerPoint? How would it have gone? Well, first of all, we were meeting at the Cavs game, so
1: it yeah. was pretty hard to bring an easel into the Cavs game, right? Yeah, yeah but some people would have gone OD yeah. D on it. You know, some people would
0: have gone crazy overboard.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. I, I let my wife continue to wear a button down as opposed to... That was hoodie. the only thing. That, yeah, yeah, and I was like, all right, that's fair enough. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, look, <laughs> it's funny. I later found out um, that when... I later found out that when they, they found Camplus... Um, honestly, the way they originally found Campus was because they were trying to size the market and understand: is this something they should go after? And I was the only one who had sized the resale market. Yeah, um, would just had just sort of come out that the resale market was worth over a billion dollars, and and it got a lot of press. Um, so, um, so anyway, so as, as I'm thinking about um, you know going into this meeting, I I, I lived it. It was like I, 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 there was no other way to do this than like just the the. The way that I, I existed, right, right, but was really interesting. And, and to your point, so I later found out these guys did the research. They found campus. They found me. They went out. They looked on LinkedIn and they saw I was a JDMBA, or I have a JDMBA from Emory and IBM. And they were like, "Oh, this guy's way too corporate for us," <laughs> right? That was their initial thought. Yeah, they need a sneaker guy, right. not this guy. Yeah, 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 yeah That yeah. I was way too corporate for them, right? And then I walk in wearing a skull cap and oh, you know and you all made this the right and sneakers. Right. That and it was funny because there's there's not a lot of people like in, within Dan's inner circle that are like MBAs or whatever. Like Dan's much more of a real world guy than, yeah. than an academic guy, and, uh-huh. and, and absolutely values like you know the grit versus the, um, the brains. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so you know it turns out that uh, that I played it right. But yeah, I guess if I had, yeah. I mean, I think if I had worn a suit, that meeting
0: would have gone way different. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So where you th- you leave the meeting, you go back home to your wife. Right. So not quite. So okay. Here, so here's what happened. Okay. So, so this, happened. this
1: is the best part. So what happens is... <laughs> you're supposed
0: is, to be there Sunday and go home. I
1: was supposed to fly right home that night. So what happens is we sit there, and it's very clear in this meeting that there's this crazy serendipity that, like, you know, everything they were looking for and everything I was looking for, and all this is happening literally in the locker room at the Cavs game on Easter Sunday. So, so at this point, Dan's like, well, you've got to come out to Detroit to see everything and meet everyone. And, um, and it was Sunday. So I was like, oh, well, my week's pretty light this week at IBM. I'm sure I could come whenever... So his assistant looks at his phone. He's like, How about like Tuesday or Wednesday? Dan's like, put your phone away. Why don't you just come back with us right now? And I was like, uh, okay. So like I text my wife, please don't go into labor. I text IBM, not sure but work tomorrow,
0: sorry. Sweet sweet five. You had to hold on. Just, you had to be at work the next morning uh-huh. at IBM. You have a wife who's about to burst any second. Uh-huh. You have a billionaire saying, Come back to my office right now. Those are some hard ass fucking decisions to make right there on the spot. IBM was an easy one, right?
1: Um, (laughs) Yeah. IBM was an easy one and like, you know, my wife's been pretty supportive and uh, we already had one kid so I, you know, what's the worst? I don't know. It it just, you know, it was all... You followed him back to Detroit. uh, I I rode with him back on, on his plane back to Detroit.
0: Right there. Yeah.
1: We, um, we, I literally, we packed up, we went right to the, to the airport and, and, and flew with him, which was great because I got to spend a lot of time talking with him. Um, we get back to Detroit, spent all day uh, in Detroit on Monday, at the, the tour that you went on, yeah. the tour, meeting lots of different people, different parts of, of, of the business, um,
0: Monday oh, after- okay. Pause right here. Mm-hmm. I, I got I to interlude here and say that we both have a commonality. We both play poker. Yep. Okay. So if you play any poker, you'll know that there's tells and they're showing your hand without having to show your actual cards, right? So now here you are. You just pulled out your one sheet of ideas of this freaking pet project that you've been working on for four years now, right? And now he's saying, fly on my private plane back to me to my headquarters. What's the poker player Josh saying now? Are you like, yo, we, we got a deal. Are you trying to play it mad cool? Like inside, it must have been fucking like fireworks in your body. So, yes. Uh-huh. T- right. Talk well, about what was going on in your, in your body, like in your head what was going on.
1: Well, in my head, everything's going – there's a million things going through your head. Yeah, right? like don't fuck up, right? Don't screw this up. Well, honestly, like <laughs> – honestly, at that point, I was still on a, a, really, a, a really just su- – some combination of surprise and, and high. Okay. Right? Because here's the thing, I've been doing this for three years, and then I, mean, I talked to everybody no in the one really, Street. Yeah, no one really <laughs> supported no, or no got it. No one even like really got it, right? And let alone was like, Yeah, I want to do this. And it was like, holy shit, this guy literally is trying to do the exact same thing that I'm trying to do. Like what first of all, like the fact that there's one other guy in the whole world trying to do the exact same thing, and then it happens to be one of the most successful business people in the world, right? That would be
0: like, the part that the scares fuck? the shit out of me. Yeah.
1: Well, <laughs> I, I wasn't even at the scary part yet because it was still so incredulous this was going on. Because here's the, first of all, Dan's got no ties to sneaker industry. It's been three years and I can't even get him to wear sneakers, right? But like, you know, he's always had this bigger idea and it was this very, it was just the whole thing was just very serendipitous. Yeah. And so I was just rolling with it. And I was yeah. like, we're just going to roll with it. And in retrospect, the way that I handled the trip was also I don't I don't think on their part it was an intentional test, but it was absolutely a test from from navigating this environment working here because working with Dan is ninety five percent just unbelievable and a dream and you like it just phenomenal, and then five percent just fucking kill yourself, right? <laughs> because he still runs one hundred and thirty other companies, yeah. Right? And to be able to to get his attention when you need it and mm-hmm. you know and whatever it is, right? It, there's a lot of of that, yeah. And you'll take that. 100 times out of 100, right, mm-hmm. and take that ratio, um, but it, it's crazy, and I never could have imagined all the different things that came out of this, including things like having Eminem as an investor, and, and the way that we, you know, Mark Wahlberg and Dan were friends, which is how Mark ends up becoming an investor, and like all the things that have come because of of the environment, the connection, yeah. and that, and the way that trip played out, a lot of it I think was, um, was, I think on their end, you know, sort of knew that that was the right person, because... I was just like, well, let's just roll with it. You yeah. know? I was like, we've gotten this far, so like, there, there was no way when he invited me that I was going to say, no, I got to go back, and uh, you know, and my wife. <laughs> no, I one of the two guys who was there knew that my wife was pregnant, uh-huh. and Dan didn't, and I
0: wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna interrupt the thing and tell him. Yeah, um, but see, that's a that's a poker move right there. Because you, you knew that yeah. you knew that by injecting the pregnancy and urgency of your wife, it would have changed the dynamic of the relationship. Dan would have said like, "You need to go home." Yep. He probably would have given he, you the plane to go well, home. I don't know what that. He definitely would have made me go home. Yeah. And now knowing him today,
1: yeah, he would, he would have, have. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> what? So so what happens is so we go back. Yeah. We, we tour the whole city. Um, on the first day, uh, Monday afternoon, back in Dan's office, mm-hmm. um, he says, "Hey, listen. You know, we'd really like you to stay another day to keep talking." And I was like sure, why not, right? I text my wife, I'm like, please don't fucking kill me, right? I text IBM, not show up at work, you know? I literally wore the same clothes for three days straight, right? I thought I was going there and going right home, right? Um, Finally, end of the day, Tuesday, back in Dan's office, and he's like, listen, we all agree we think this is the right fit, Um, we want to buy campus, we want you to come here and run the company, and they finally let me go home. I get home at, like, 1 a.m. on Tuesday night, and my wife's waiting up for me, and I walk in, I was like, yo, I think we're moving to Detroit, and She's like, what the hell? I thought you went to Cleveland. <laughs> right? She thinks, like, you're on a, like a rager right yeah. now. Like, what? You know? It's like, I was like, ah, I, might, I might have, like, forgotten to mention that we flew to Detroit. Um, but, you know, it was funny. I was actually and on my way out the door Tuesday after they had kidnapped me for, like, three days... Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, someone had back channeled that my wife was pregnant. He ran after me, and he was like, "Hey, hey!" He's like, "And he gave me a stack of like like calves onesies and other stuff like for the kid." And fortunately, my son <laughs> wasn't born for another eight days, <laughs> so it worked out okay. Um, but yeah, the whole thing was was interesting. And, and the honestly, though, the the real poker um, comes in a place for after that, right? Because what happened from there was mm-hmm.
0: Dan saying we'd like to buy Campus, yeah, and then I actually had to negotiate that deal, right? Because you didn't right. sign a document. No. Right then, and there that week, it was like, "Let's start this discussion." How long did it take from the say, from saying we want to buy campus to signing? Something. Um,
1: yeah, so that was Easter, um, so it's like mid-April, and um, and we signed a deal on um, we shook hands on June third. Two months. So yeah. In my experience, yeah. that's actually really fast. It was really fast. No, um, there was. There was still legal stuff that we had to work through after that, mm-hmm. um, but in terms of, uh, and, and by the way, most of that time was me waiting for Dan. And so here's the thing, this is, unfortunately, fortunately we were apart. I was in Philadelphia and he was in uh, Detroit because what would happen was he would send an offer. I would very studiously and, and professionally send a counter offer within 24 hours, mm-hmm. and then I'd wait. And then I'd wait and I'm literally like refreshing my phone like every four minutes for like like, a week, yeah, right? And, like, in my mind, you know, every minute, every day that goes by, you know, all the things go through your head. I'm like, what? I fucked up. And the reality is, like, he still has 130 other companies mm-hmm. to run, and, you know, and, and his guys who are working with him were like, don't read anything into him, you know, it's just hard to get stuff back in front of him, and da-da. And, like, now I, I see that, and, yeah. like, fair enough. But it right. doesn't change the fact that I refresh my phone every four minutes <laughs> for a week and a half, right? Like, right. And then I'm, some, I'm surprised he you know, even had the balls to go back... And, like, how many times did you have to counter? Um, so we did, we went two rounds. Uh-huh. And then on the third, they came back, and they basically did not come back with the third and said something like, maybe we should just wait. And then I was like, fuck. And I was like, listen. And this was two, like, two of his guys were sort of managing. I said, listen. I said, can you just get me in a room with Dan? I was like, if you get me in the room with Dan, we can get this deal done, mm-hmm. right? And this was, like, on a... On a Friday, or I mean, it was like a Thursday. It was a Thursday, and they said, All right, they're like, they came back to me a little bit. Later. They're like, Tuesday, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you can come up Tuesday and do this. By the way, this time, they're not offering to pay for my flight. They're not offering to yeah. pay for a hotel. There was nothing, right? right? There's like, Yeah, if you want to come meet with Dan on Tuesday, Persona you can Sona non Tuesday. grata, yep. no more
0: private. <laughs> yeah, the, the
1: negotiations had changed drastically. Yeah. Um, so I fly myself up there on Tuesday. I book my hotel room. Right. I get there uh, 8 a.m., I'm meeting with like, his guys. We're having like, breakfast. And I have no idea whether they even want to make a deal. At this point, I'm like, do you guys want to do this or not? Like, am I going in there and he's just going to tell me to fuck off? Like, what? And they're like, no, no, we definitely want to do this. I was like, okay. And so the meeting was set for like 1 p.m. So, you know, we hung out and did some stuff during the day. Uh, 12.45 comes around. They're like, Dan can't meet until 3. Okay, fine. So we do some stuff, right? 3 o'clock comes. Dan can't meet until 4. Okay. He can't meet until 5. This was the first game of the Atlanta Hawks playoff series in Atlanta, and I knew Dan had to leave at 5.30 for mm-hmm. the game, mm-hmm. right? So it's five. meeting's supposed to be at 5 p.m. He's supposed to leave at 5.30 for the game, right? I'm waiting outside his office. I'm waiting outside his office. 5 o'clock, he's not there. 5.10, he's not there. 5.15, he's not there. Five like, 5, like 20, he gets into his office. He pulls in his guys for two minutes. So I go in there at, like, 5.22, right, and um, he has to have a
0: 530 you his, know you have 8 minutes to something like that seal right? this yeah. deal yeah
1: right and so I walk in and as I'm walking in before I sit down making conversation I said how's Kyrie's leg Kyrie had or how's Kyrie's foot Kyrie had hurt his foot in the last round I got 7 minutes on everything you ever want to know about a foot injury I'm like what <laughs>
0: <laughs> he just goes in on Kyrie's foot and they were we, hoping
1: it'd be like 30 seconds yeah, yeah, of like and, of uh, him, saying, or... uh, him saying yeah no it's, it's fine he's right. gonna be good you know and and then we got the deal done literally in like one minute. And he sat down and we were we were close enough, you know, and and yeah. he, he definitely he wanted to get it done and uh-huh. um and we were able to get it done. We both made a few concessions and we got it done at the highest level, right? And it was best was, you know, he was like, let's walk out there and tell them all we couldn't reach a deal. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> you sure? So like, I had to pretend like I wasn't like on cloud nine. Right. And I was like, uh yeah. And then like, fortunately he broke really soon and I was like, yeah, that was fine. And that was great. and We were all, I was all happy. I um literally like five minutes later, I went in the other room, I called IBM, I gave my notice. And, um, and I went back to Philadelphia, and then uh, that next Monday, four, five days from then, whatever, Monday through Friday, every week for the next um, like four or five months, I was flying from Philly to Detroit, mm-hmm. um, starting to work on StockX, and, uh, and looking for a home, and eventually moved my wife and family here, but um, literally from the, the next day, you know, that next week, we were trying to, to take campus, what it was, and turn it into StockX. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. That's an incredible story. Some think business people aren't creatives and vice versa, creatives aren't business people. But every deal that's ever been inked has this storyline. Josh just happened to give us the complete minute-to-minute play-by-play. This is art. It just so happens to be the art of the deal. How does someone turn a dream into an experiment, into a reality, and back into a dream that they get to live every single day of their life? Think back to Josh's campus days, working on it nights and weekends after his job at IBM. And then think of the mountain he had to climb in order to now find himself sitting at the doorstep of Dan Gilbert's office, trying his hardest to patiently wait for the verdict to come in. How many times do you think he said to himself, good things come to those who wait, Josh? And it's true. One of the biggest differences between the good ones and the great ones, it's not talent, It's not skill. It's not luck. It's patience. And guess what? This was only the beginning for Josh. You're negotiating this deal. You're countering this negotiation. But at the same time, you knew that your alternate was just going back and working at (laughs) IBM. Like, (laughs) what leg did you think you had to stand on negotiating with this billionaire?
1: I I have no idea. Um, I have no idea except for... The only thing was... I just... I didn't think that they would just walk away, uh-huh. right? Like, worst case is, like, you go back with your tail between your legs and you take, like, you know, one yeah. at, like a lower offer or mm-hmm. whatever. But, like, you know, if you – as long as you handle it professionally and, you know, and make counteroffers that are, you know, educated and have some Sensible. basis of reality yeah. and not just be, like, an asshole about it mm-hmm. – like you can kind of go back to at least the last offer, you know, and, and sure you might lose a little, you know, face or whatever. But so it, you know, it was always that, I, and I wasn't, I wasn't being unreasonable. Mm-hmm. Like in retrospect, like. Could I maybe have gotten a little bit more? Maybe mm-hmm. right? You know, could what I maybe agreed to a little bit less? Sure, like yeah. absolutely. You know what I mean? So like it was, it was still being somewhat reasonable in the negotiation that you know I was like I was just really careful not I wasn't going to burn any bridges. Yeah, it. yeah.
0: Was it a deal where and I don't know if you want to disclose numbers, but was it a deal where they bought Campus and put you on a like sort of salary and equity still in the new company?
1: Yeah. So um, yeah. So. So they they bought Dan bought Campus, mm-hmm. and then we became equity partners in StockX mm-hmm. in turning Campus into StockX. Mm-hmm. And so as the CEO of uh, StockX, I have a salary, and as uh, as a co-founder with Dan um, and Greg Schwartz, who he met, who's the COO, um, we all have equity in StockX as well.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. cool. So it was it's a heavy negotiation because you've got the buyout of your company, you, a salary package and then equity in this new company as well. So there's like three levers that you're sort of juggling in the air. Right, it, yeah. it, it manifests itself into two separate
1: um, contracts. There's a sale, there's mm-hmm. a purchase and sale agreement, and then there's an employment contract. Mm-hmm.
0: Of the of the three when you were going back and forth, which was the ones that you were sort of like going back on? The the, the one that you have the most leg to
1: negotiate in that point is the sale of the company because there's a, there's a way to, um, to value it as the asset you have, the hardest part about this, and the hardest part for any entrepreneur starting a company and dealing with equity with co-founders, is it's really hard to figure out. Um, you know, it's really hard just to figure out equity in a startup in the best of circumstances. Yeah, and this was a very very unusual circumstance where you're going into business with a billionaire who not only he was going to be a co-founder and he was going to be the investor. So mm-hmm. he kind of has two legs in that pie. And he's bringing a
0: ton to the table. That's
1: right, and his whole his whole ecosystem and and the credibility and everything else that goes along. So it's a really it's a really complicated situation under the best of circumstances, but also at the same time trying to negotiate the sale of the company. Um, you know, it's like I, I kind of I kind of put most of my focus into the sale of the company because that was I just understood that dynamic a lot better. The other one was this sort of black box yeah. that we sort of went into it with the best intentions, and the and the reality is of that um, is that um, Dan is is a just a phenomenal partner and, and, and person. And as the company has grown, um, we've been able to make sure that everything is, is fair and the way it should be mm-hmm. because we all went into it and no idea what it was
0: going to be. Mm-hmm. Incredible, yeah. Um, you did a pretty infamous TED talk. Was that before or after this? In the middle. It middle. was in the
1: middle of the yeah. negotiation. So, no, so it was one in the, in the middle of the negotiation, in the middle of, of Campus and StockX. So, um, but actually, it was kind of in the middle of the negotiation. So the way it happened was... And I suggest,
0: for you listening, if you haven't seen it, you should Google this TED Talk. It's really, really informative and amazing. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so I was working at IBM, and I was doing Campus
1: on the side. And um, the IBM marketing team came to me and said, we are doing a TED event. And it was, uh, it was like Big Ted, you know, there's like Big Ted and there's TEDx, right? Yeah, so main stage Ted. Yeah, yeah. they like, we're doing a, a TED event and we'd like you to apply to speak at it. Mm-hmm. We know you're doing this, you know, everyone at IBM knew what I was doing. Okay. There's no trying to hide it and it was not competitive with IBM and I still did my job well at IBM, right? So, so they knew and so they asked me to apply um, and then I applied and then I was in TED world and, uh, and I was accepted to, to do this presentation as part of the IBM TED event. Um, and then in between the time that I was accepted and the event, all of this happened. Mm-hmm. And I leave IBM, and I go start working with Dan. And so then I get to on the other side of that negotiation, and I'm now firmly there. And then I call back to IBM Marketing and Ted and say, hey, listen, I left IBM. Can I still do this? And, wow. and, and IBM was like... You know, TED had already accepted me. So they were kind of like, we don't care. Like, you're here yeah. now. And IBM was like, yeah, hey, you're an IBM alum. Great. No problem. Nice. So they all were happy for me. And the timing was phenomenal because the TED Talk was in October of 2015. Mm-hmm. And we launched StockX in February of 2016. So it was we had been working on StockX long enough that I was able to tease some of the concepts. So I kind of ended TED Talk with stock market of things. You know, what yeah. if there was a stock market of things? In TED World, you can't talk about brand, you can't talk about the company, but the big idea. And mm-hmm. so it worked out perfectly to be able to tease this idea
0: around a stock market right. of things, and then four months later to, to launch StockX. So yeah. it was really just phenomenal timing. Yeah, you couldn't have had a better platform to promote no. this thing on. No. No. But you also dropped some crazy knowledge that I think shocked a lot of people. And I think one of the ones and I don't know if the data is now old, and if you could remind me, but like, you said something the effect of the size of the resale market at that time. If it were a company, you said it would have been, I think, the second or third biggest company. What was it? Right. So I so I know it's you're to. So, um So so at the time,
1: um, Nike was number one and Skechers was number two. Mm-hmm. Um, we can all remember a time before Yeezy, mm-hmm. um, right? The, yeah. Right. This was uh Pretty at, easy. Th- yeah. at this point only two Yeezys had come out: the Turtle Dove and the original Seven Fifty Brown. So we were nowhere near what it is today, and, and Adidas was still sort of distant, distant third. Yeah. Skechers was actually the second largest. Um, company from a revenue standpoint in the United States, mm-hmm. and Nike was buying away first. This is our retail level, and so if you took the the resale market, which in the U.S. at that time was about 1.2 billion dollars, and Nike was about 97% of that, mm-hmm. right? So let's just call Nike a billion. Yeah, and let's say the profit in the resale market is is a third. Let's mm-hmm. just say you. May, so let's just call on average 300 billion dollars is what. Nike's resale market share is, right? That was bigger than Skechers' revenue. Mm -hmm. So what it was is the profit that kids were making on Nike was more than the second biggest retail sneaker in the United States. Now, Adidas has since totally past sketchers got a lot closer to, to Nike, so that stat doesn't hold true anymore because of how well Adidas has done in the last three years. But it's but, still top five. Oh yeah, yeah, oh for sure. It's still it would be three. It would yeah. be three after after Nike and Adidas. The, the profit that people are making on Nike's in the secondary market is bigger that was bigger than any other sneaker company in the United States at the time. Yeah. It's crazy. And I think saying that on the Ted stage was like yeah. like a head explosion moment. And you know what, the real head explosion moment was when I found that stat during it, because I was researching that, that general idea, mm-hmm. and I, I checked that number like 40 times. I was like, this can't be right, I was like, this is fucking amazing, mm-hmm. and, I, and, I was, and I was like, man, this is unbelievable. I checked it every which way, because I, you know, I, I, I couldn't, can't make up numbers and data and go in there, but to have that come out and, and make my point so clearly in the TED talk, it was really great. Right. And from that point, it was just skyrocketing, right? Yeah, there, I mean, and what it was great is because, you know, once Adidas and Yeezy and Pharrell and NMDs and everything else, yeah. you know, um, we haven't done a, a full estimate, like, a deep dive the way that, that I did back in the day um, in a while. But, like, best guess right now is the resale sneaker market, U.S., is probably clip- creeping up on maybe 1. $1.7, 1. $1.8 mm-hmm. um and
0: globally probably close to $7 billion, Wow. So. And... I guess the success of Adidas and sort of other brands bubbling too only helps your business, right? It, it, it doesn't help that only Nike and Jordan are dominating the market. So,
1: so that's true, mm-hmm. right? The, um, you know, the more the secondary market exists, the more shoes that are out there, it is better for StockX. Um, what's been interesting though is that Adidas grew the resale market, but not that much. They really just took a lot of share from Nike. Right. from the in-line people buying it at regular price
0: in stores, that market.
1: A little bit of that, and right. then also a little bit of the Nike resale market. So, I mean, think about Jordans today versus Jordan three years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Jordans are sitting on shelves at Foot Locker. Mm-hmm. Three years ago, that never happened, right? Yeah. And so we've seen some of that, is that Adidas is, has taken some of that secondary market from Nike. Yep. So their growth has grown the secondary market, but
0: it's also just shifted some of it as well. Yeah. Um, you mentioned before that, like, with Dan Gilbert on board now. You have a connection to all these people that you wouldn't have any connection with. So who are some of these people that are now involved with StockX? Sure. Yeah,
1: so we have some really prominent um, investors and um, frankly, we never planned this. Mm-hmm. Um, we never said we should go out and get some of the most famous people involved. It happened very organically. Um, and the first one was with, uh, with Paul Rosenberg, who's Eminem's manager. And um, you know, when we started this company, we sat literally right outside of Dan's office. And the reason why is because he was so personally invested in this. And what would happen was anybody that was meeting with Dan, it didn't matter who they were. They could be there about NBA or mortgages or it could be, you know, the the mayor of, of Houston. It didn't matter. Anybody, he'd walk them out after the meeting and be like, oh, Josh, show them what we're working on, right? Because mm-hmm. he was just really excited about StockX. And one day, Paul Rosenberg was in the office um, talking to some people about a music festival in Detroit. And, um, and that sort of connection was... was struck and, and, you know, I was Paul's a sneaker head, right? Well, Paul and M have done so many sneaker collaborations, Mm -hmm. you know, through the years, um, that, you know, they know that market really well. And and so I was introduced to Paul in that context and I shared it with him and, and, you know, he said, Oh, he said, we should get M involved in this. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like (laughs) a good idea. We should get it. You know, like, what the fuck, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was the first, and, um, and it was great. And, and by the way, like, of all the people I've worked with at this point, you know, there's probably no one who's more professional and smarter and, and just in that space than Paul. And so he's been phenomenal, and we've been super lucky that he was sort of the first one for us to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously we've done some really cool stuff with Eminem. But um, it kind of grew from there. Um, the second one was we were in a meeting and uh, just randomly came up that Mark Wahlberg wears a lot of Jordans. Mm-hmm. Dan says, oh, I know Mark. Like an hour later, I'm on an email chain with Dan and Mark. Two days later, I'm at, in Beverly Hills at Mark's house going through a sneaker collection with him. And, um, and you know, and, and Mark's like, hey, you know, it's like, can I get involved in the company? And I was like, okay, okay. right? Like, <laughs> so, and then from there, we started doing it more strategically and thinking through it as, as we met people. But it was really like Em and Mark in the beginning, and it was really organic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and both those guys have been, um, have been just really super
0: helpful in, yeah. in, in doing stuff. In these meetings, who have you met with that you were, like, very, very... <laughs> like, holy shit, this is a moment now. I'm, like, nervous as hell. mm M. M. There, like, there's no question. Em, still the first one. Yeah, well, so I didn't meet M for a
1: while because it was really just through Paul. And yeah. at the time, he was working on his new album, which mm-hmm. just came out um, a couple months ago. And so, um, yeah, I mean, look, I... Um, you know, I'm of that age, right, where, like, you know, um, his first album came out, I was... I just graduated high, uh, college, right? So, you know, you're right in that time, like, I mean, it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's Eminem, right? It's yeah. like, and so, um, yeah, so that was the, the first one. And frankly, um, I was really nervous, like, leading up to it. And like, I thought for a while, like, I would, and then when I got to it, he was so cool, and he was, and it was super easy, and when it was there, it was fine. Yeah. But like, the two days before was the like, all right, like, because at that point, I would already met a lot of people, and, and uh-huh. you know, I mean, you like you know, right? Like people yeah. are just people and at the yeah. end of the day it's not a big deal. And um But M's
0: yes. persona is not like he's gonna give you a hug at the meeting. No. Right? He's gonna have his hat low, he's gonna be grilling your ass, yeah. right? So you knew that was happening.
1: hundred <laughs> yeah. percent. And uh but it's still he was great. And um I don't know if have you ever seen the, the video of me interviewing him? No. So um we gotta was, check it out. Yeah, it it's it was unbelievable because um we only had a very short period of time um, to do this this thing where, because um, we we did this charity auction where they gave us um, a Jordan Four Encore and the re-release, and so there were five shoes, and I just sort of talked through each one of them with him because there were different shoes from his past, a shoe he wore on stage, a shoe he autographed, and then the Encore, and um, and he just started fucking around and was messing around, and I just went with it, and it was awesome, and it was like we filmed for five and a half minutes, and we had four forty-five
0: of like usable content that made it into it. It was just wow. yeah. He's a star. Yeah, he is, absolutely. Um, why did you change the name from Campus to StockX? And was that like a personal sort of like, you know, this is my baby. Campus is my baby. Why, why are we calling it StockX?
1: So it's interesting. There's, uh, there's something. So I got here, and um, the guys were calling the business Soul Trade, S-O-L-E-T-R-A-D. And if you don't know that there's 800 different blogs called Soul Collector and Soul, Soul Kicks Trade. and, yeah, yeah. and you know, everything else... Yeah. And in their mind, it was a playoff of, like, Ameritrade and, like, this this other... Gotcha. Right? Okay. And, um, and so I got there, and I was like, listen. I was like, it doesn't have to be called Campus, <laughs> but it cannot be called Soul Trade. And frankly, you can't have the word sneaker, kick, soul, anything in there. Like, mm-hmm. that was my only requirement as we went there. I was like, it cannot... Because with Campus, the reason that we called it Campus was, was exactly that. It was like, I just wasn't going to try to cut through the clutter and create a brand against... You know, Nice Kicks, Sneaker News, you know, mm-hmm. Kicks on Fire and everyone. I was like, you, there had to be some unique name that yeah. sets it apart. and You either build a brand around it or you don't. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of like my foot in the sand with everyone mm-hmm. when I got here. And I wasn't like, it has to be Campless. Right. I was like, but Campless works uh-huh. for that, all right. right? And I was like, I was kind of pushing that. If we can't come up with something that is out of this sphere, like, this is a good possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, we, all, we all were happy with StockX and think it's just... Who it thought of StockX?
0: So we're not exactly sure. Yeah. Um, These brainstorm meetings, right? Like, yeah, yeah,
1: I have some uh, some pictures from the whiteboards where there's like eight of us in a room and just words everywhere. Yeah. But I know that I came up with Stock Market X, uh-huh. and, uh, and I think someone took that and shortened it, and we got to it. But it was also one of the things, so we almost named the company um, uh, Matter, M-A-T-T-E-R, mm-hmm. which in retrospect is, sounds fucking horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but Because uh, you'd be doing that every time, M A T T E R. Like you know, well, part of that. There'd be yeah. a lot of reasons, right? Yeah. Right. And I forget why we thought it was a good name. But here's the thing: so a lot of times it comes down to the domain. Mm-hmm. So Mark Cuban owned the domain M A T T E R, <laughs> right? So we had Dan email Mark, yeah. and say, "Hey, you know, da da da. I have, you know, I know these guys are interested in this domain. Yeah. Billionaire to billionaire. Something. Hey, mm-hmm. can you give me matter.com? Right. And Mark replies with like one line that says, "Twitter offered a million. I said no. Period. And that was it. And and it's like, <laughs> fuck yeah, we're not, you know. So we didn't even bother going down that path of doing right. that. So thank you, Mark Cuban, for not selling this matter. <laughs> right. An awesome and, uh, and then StockX, we were able to get for, you know, someone owned it, but, you know, they didn't know what we were doing with it. And so yeah. we bought it for, I don't know, $20,000. Right.
0: I know that we briefly touched upon the idea of a name here, but it is something that I want to point out for people and anyone with aspirations of building a recognizable identity. You have to pick a name you can live with, and ideally a name you're proud to say, a lot. If all goes well, you'll be saying this name for the rest of your life. Sometimes I'll stumble upon some great words, and here's a trick that I do. I keep a running list on my phone, and I'll revisit those names from time to time and see if they still move me. Play around with them. What does it look like on a business card, as a label on a shirt, or with an at symbol in front of it? Keep a running list. You'll thank me for this one day. A lot of entrepreneurs that I meet have, in their head anyway, like a genius idea, right? And then someone comes and says, hey, I want to hear your idea, so tell me all about it because I want to help you. But then there's this fear that like, well, if I tell him the whole idea, I lose the idea potentially and he's got more money, more power, more connections. He could steal the idea like that. Were you afraid that Dan and co were going to just swipe the idea out from under your feet? So... First of all, I love this question, and I love the fact that, that you're asking this question because
1: one of my like personal let's say like a rule to live by. What, I believe more than anything that ideas are worthless and execution is everything. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I shared with you the Ism's book, which is kind of like the uh, Quicken Loans culture book. And one of the um, Isms is the way they say it is: um, ideas are rewarded. Um, execution is worshipped or something like that, right? Um, Here's my thing. Um, If you have such a good idea that you're going to share it with someone else, Mm -hmm. right, and they have the time, they're not already doing something valuable, right, right? and are going to go do it and can do it better than you. Mm -hmm. The expertise, yeah. Right? Then, like, you shouldn't be doing it anyway. Like, you know, (laughs) but the, the other thing is, like, first of all, like, you're gonna go take it to someone who's who has the ability to execute this better than you, and they're not already working on something and have the time. Who do you know that's that good at something mm-hmm. that has all the time in the world to go execute this thing that you want to dedicate your whole life to? You go do this full time, whatever you think your idea is. Quit your job and you put all your time and energy into it. Like there's no way someone else should be able to beat that to you, including someone who has a, a, a billion dollars. Because yeah. the reality is, you still have to go out and build that team and have people. And if you're the if you're the expert in it or you're the one who's passionate and gonna put the time is. Like, execution is, is all that matters. And it's funny, Is like, we interview people all the time. In fact, I feel like that's all I do anymore at StockX since we've been growing so fast. We're up to 130 people. And um, and I will take the 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 hard worker, right, every single time than the idea guy mm-hmm. or the, like... Mm-hmm. The and, talker. Yeah, yeah, or, like, sure, there's lots of good ideas, but, but shit, you know how many things that we wish we could execute but we don't have the bandwidth to execute? Right. There's a million ideas about, like, yeah. So... I know that's a lot and I'm so, I, I've felt this from the very early, um, early age because as an entrepreneur, I've been out there and asked people for advice and then as I've become more successful, I've been on the other side and I have kids that show up with like an NDA – and I'm like, get the fuck out of here. There's okay. zero chance I'm going to sign your NDA to give you advice, let alone the fact that I'm taking the time to talk to you right. or whatever. And someone made that very clear to me very when I was very early and young. Right. It's like, listen, like, there's nothing that reeks of more like you know, naive and amateur than, than showing up and asking someone for their advice, like carrying an NDA. Like,
0: Good advice. Yeah. So you knew going into that first meeting with Dan that you weren't, you already knew this. You weren't going to try to go in there with an NDA.
1: No, no, no. And... and Here's the thing is I've been out there pitching this idea for over a year. Right. So a lot of people knew about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and it was, you know, Nike certainly has the resources Mm -hmm. that they thought more about it. But no, like the other thing is like they still have to have someone to do with it. So if you're Nike and you see that idea, right, you either say this is an amazing idea and this is the right person to do it with because, you know, they're passionate about they want to do it, yeah. right? Or you say, we're going to take this idea and try to force someone else to execute it or whatever. So, yeah, so I've been pitching this to, to many people for a long time. And, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, and it was just crazy that Dan literally had the exact same idea.
0: Yeah, it's great advice. Mm-hmm. Um, you said earlier that the one thing you didn't want to do was do something within sneakers because that was your passion, Right. Now, how do you feel? You've somehow combined your passion of sneakers with your job, entrepreneurship. It's your livelihood now. Are you still impassioned about sneakers as you were before? Yeah, it's, I mean it's unbelievable. Like it is, it's just
1: absolutely unbelievable to, first of all, to be a part of that community and to have created something, you know, in that community. To have friends that I grew up, you know, buying sneakers with that, you know, email me and and be like, oh. I, Friends, I, guys, I went to bat, you know, played high school basketball with. it will email me like, "Remember those shoes we used to wear then?" You know, I like, yeah. bought them on StockX. Like, that's it's just amazing.
0: That's so cool. Um, yeah,
1: and and yeah, and yeah. It's just like as someone who was outside looking in for so long, and just a consumer, and just a, a reader of tweets from from you and you know, and Russ and Matt and you. I mean, like to now to be a part of that and sitting here with you, like it's it's unbelievable and like maybe I should have tried to do that earlier or maybe this was just the way that it was supposed to happen.
0: All right, uh, yeah. last question. Yeah. What is the most amount of money you've spent on a shoe? Uh, Honestly, it, um, it was about uh,
1: a month ago um, and I really wanted the Presto Off-Lights and I never spent um, $1,000 on a pair of shoes and I spent uh, just under $1,000 on StockX. <laughs> um, right now, they've gone up another $400 since then. I was basically watching it and the price just kept going up. And, and I was like, you had to just... I don't like, yeah, okay. I was like shit, if I'm ever going to get them like I just have to buy them now. And yeah. I I'd never spent more than like f- about 450 in that range. I'd never spent 500. It was kind of a uh, um and like I just I just wanted them. And I was like fuck it, I'm buying them. So it's most I've ever spent by far. And you wear them? Yeah, I wear them all the time. So I was wearing them yesterday. Do you get a uh, employee promo code? <laughs> very very small. This is you know, we get people ask all the time. Uh, the problem is that we're a marketplace, right? Yeah. We're not. So all we have is, is the margin that, that we charge the seller, you know, yeah. which is which is nine percent. So there is a, a small employee discount at StockX, but um, but yeah, I still paid almost a thousand dollars for it.
0: Yeah, I mean, how many shoes do you move a month? Shit, I don't even month. We move.
1: Um, it's a, right now. It's about six thousand a day. So I don't know whatever that is a month. Two hundred thousand. Two hundred thousand a month. Yeah. But yet you hold no inventory. Right, we're just a marketplace. All we're doing is connecting buyers and sellers. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. that's incredible. Mm-hmm. All right, man. Well, thanks. That was awesome. Yeah, oh, it's good talking to you. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode with Josh Luber, CEO of StockX. I hope you're enjoying the business of hype as we're rounding out the back half of season two. You can find out more about the show and listen to other episodes at hypebeast.com radio. You can subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. I personally use Overcast and leave a comment and tell us what you think of the show. You can also reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Staple. You can check us out on the web at businessofhype.com and email any questions you might have to questions at businessofhype.com. And I think we're going to reach into the mailbag. Dan, do we have any questions this week? All right, Jeff. This week's question comes from Robert Howes. I understand how markup for wholesale works, double your production cost for wholesale, then double your wholesale price for MSRP. But what about consignment pricing? Should the retailer still take 50%? I've heard of cases where they take less of a percentage for taking less risk. What is the streetwear industry standard? Hey, Robert, thanks for that question. Um, You gleaned on this a little bit in your question, but I do want to break down a little bit about how the pricing structure works. Uh, particularly in clothing, and actually a lot of different industries too. You take the grand total of the amount of money it takes to make your thing. Traditionally, this is called cost of goods sold, right? It's everything that it took to make the thing. You add it up, every stitch, button, label, silkscreen, shipping, postage, storage, uh, every single thing, even down to the tape that you use to close the box with. You add up every single penny, and that is the entire amount it costs you to make those to make that product you then double that and by doubling it that is your profit when you double that amount and that typically is your wholesale amount that's the amount that you would sell that item to a store that is going to carry your product. So that's the wholesale price. The store typically then will take that wholesale price, double it again, and that is your retail price. And that is the price that a customer who walks into the store would pay for that item. Uh, And just to give you some simple math, if you were doing a t-shirt and after you added up all your expenses, it costs you $6 to make that t-shirt, you would then sell it at wholesale for $12. So you would sell it to a store that would carry that t-shirt for 12 bucks. The store turns around and doubles it again from 12 to 24 and that's how you get a basic $24, $25 t shirt So, Robert, you, you brought that up in your question. What you're asking about is consignment. And to the viewers who don't understand what consignment is, this comes down to the issue of payment terms, which is how a store or customer pays you for your goods. Uh, and there's many different terms. Um, the most advantageous term to a business owner is... COD, cash on delivery, right? Or prepayment even. Um, You've probably done some things where like you've prepaid for something. Uh, A lot of Kickstarters are sort of prepaid, right? You put down your credit card. You say you're about to pay $50 for this thing that you kind of have no idea when they're going to be able to deliver it. That's prepayment. COD is cash on delivery. Uh, When UPS or the mailman hands you the package, you literally hand them a check in exchange. Um, So that's very safe. And then there's the net terms. So net terms, meaning they have X number of days to be able to pay your bill. Net 15, net 30, net 45, net 60. These are the traditional days, um, meaning they have anywhere between two weeks and two months to pay the bill. Uh, Of course, when you're lending that sort of credit, what happens is you are extending a little bit of risk risk as well Uh, you're hoping and praying that they pay you in those in those 30 to 60 days Um, so some people would ask well why would I extend that risk well it's because you want to get into that store right if you're if you're a startup brand and let's say you're talking to Barney's or Dover Street market or one of the you know great stores in the world and they're willing to take your product but they say I need I need two months to pay you no negotiation you know that's where you might have to take the risk right Um, So that's net payment terms. Uh, Now, Robert asks about consignment. And consignment is the least desirable form of payment when it comes to the brand owner. What consignment means is um, you only pay for the goods that have sold. And whatever didn't sell, they can give the unsold merchandise back to you. So I'll give you an example. If you sent 12 t-shirts to a store and they sold two, They only need to pay you on the two T-shirts that sold and they can give you back the 10 that didn't sell and you're stuck with that inventory. So that is the least advantageous for the brand owner. It is the most advantageous for the retail store. And so what Robert is asking here is can you now change the mathematical equation of doubling cost to doubling wholesale to get to retail? Can you change that mathematical equation because you are bearing all of the risk in a consignment deal? My answer is, Anything fucking goes, right? It's a negotiation. This is a poker game. So there's a lot of factors involved besides the cost and the and the terms. The other factors are how big and how small and how desirable and how uh, unknown your brand is, right? The other side of that fence is how desirable and how reputable the store is that you're selling to. Um, so, you know, it, it really comes down to a negotiation. There is no hard rule. Um, sure. I've heard stories where if you're offering consignment, you don't have to double it. They should be able to take less profit because there's more risk. Um, but I've also personally done deals where it's consignment and it's normal 50% markup as well. Uh, so it, it really, you know, comes down to the reputation that you have and the reputation that the store has. I think the bottom line learning lesson here is that in, in this whole game of retail and business and manufacturing and selling there's no set rules there's no instruction manual that you have to figure out it is all a negotiation and sometimes it even comes down to the person that you're talking to at the store level Um, so you might be able to work out one deal with the store manager versus another deal with the store buyer versus another deal with the store clerk you know Um, it really just comes down to that it's it's a it's a complete free for all so i suggest you protect yourself um, by you know, I suggest you protect yourself when you do a consignment deal just to make sure that it's really worth your while because it is the least desirable terms that you can give yourself as the brand owner. All right. I hope that was helpful. Uh, thanks for the question again, Robert. Again, if you have questions that you want to ask us uh, and, our, and our illustrious experts that we interview all the time, you could hit us up at questions at businessofhype.com. The Business of Hype is directed by Daniel Novetta edited and produced by bright young things you can check them out at byt.nyc engineering is by david rogers berry and we are looking for interns for the business of hype so if you're interested give us a shout we'd love to see you in the recording studio one day this was recorded at sibling rivalry studio and on location at the StockX headquarters in beautiful detroit michigan i'm jeff staple and you've been listening to the business of hype on hypebeast radio